Welcome to this week's episode of Esports Wrap. I'm your host, Michael Amorgan. And this week, we're going to be talking about something that I actually talked about two days ago. See, I was invited to uh, a conference of some sorts, a, um, a local conference that's about anime and gaming and stuff like that. And what happened was they had sent the, they had sent a request, you know, do you want to, we have a space, do you want to talk? So I said, sure. And, um, you know, during the conversation, it kind of went like, okay, well, I mainly deal with gaming. Like, what is it that you want me to, is there anything in particular you wanted someone to talk about? And they were like, anime. So I said, okay, let me think about it. Thought, thought, thought. How does anime and, whoa, why is this showing up like that? Why, how does anime and um and gaming really work together and hey paladin welcome to the stream man and so that's where this particular topic came from um now we did try to record it at the event and i have about a minute of it which is like right around the time where dwan is doing her introduction and for some reason which is very weird it uh had an issue and like when i checked it afterwards it's like oh yeah um check the sd card took it out put it back in works fine was able to recover that minute long thing but i don't know why it died so i'm not sure but either way here we are today and we're going to be talking about that same topic, um, mainly because I know there were some people that were hoping to get a recording of the event from Sunday. But obviously that didn't work out. So we're going to be talking about that today. Yeah, we're going to move on. And thank you. I figured this would be the probably one of the better welcoming messages, considering this is an anime that's quite literally says no game, no life. It's obviously about two siblings who play games together, and even though they don't look anything alike. Um, anyway, that is a whole nother thing on its own. And before we really get into anything, we have to give a little bit of a history. And this is where things kind of get a little funky that people don't really know about. Um... Now, here's the thing. In the 1970s, America was, well, gaming in America was actually a really, really big thing. And it was actually ran mainly back then, very similar to how it is now, except that there were more arcades uh, where, you know, you, you have the arcade cabinets and everything like that, and you put in your quarters and you play games like that or you would have a system like an atari system and you play that at home play people in your neighborhood if you didn't have one yourself you know that kind of thing they had so much power back then that in 1979 the u.s gaming companies lobbied the u.s government to change the currency and they actually succeeded they were the reason why they did this is because the Eisenhower $1 coin was too big for the vending machines or arcade machines. And 
they wanted something that was easy to um, put inside the vending machines and arcade machines uh, because they noticed in Japan the equivalent to the one dollar coin, which is the hundred yen, uh, was actually the most prevalent form of payment for gaming. Well, arcades back then, you put in your hundred yen, you play your game, that kind of thing. And so they wanted something that was quick and easy and simple. Now, they eventually was able to get the U.S. government to agree to it, and that's where the Susan B. Anthony one dollar coin comes from. It's kind of weird. When you really think about it, that a U that government um, gaming companies were actually able to change the form of currency for the United States, but um, yeah, there was some fight back from it because now it was a little bit too easy to mix that between mix that between uh, quarters and one dollars and stuff like that, which is still kind of the issue. Even uh, Susan B. Anthony dollar coin, um, I know within the past few years I've gotten at least three. From a vending machine when i should have actually just gotten quarters but i'm not going to complain that's 75 cents more than what i should have got so but there was some problems on the horizon and in 1983 this is when the u.s game market crashed or what they called in japan the atari shock now, the reason why they called it the Atari shock is because the U.S. game market really and truly crashed because of Atari. Or not so much because of Atari themselves, but because of how they had their systems set up. See, back then, cartridges were pretty open and whatnot, but there weren't a lot of people that actually knew how to develop for them and actually like encode a game onto the cartridge. So, say so E.T. destroyed the gaming industry hype. Um, well, see, here's the thing, though. Like, when gaming was a, becoming a bigger thing, like, it got to, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but there was such a hype that was building up, and I'm going to get to this in a moment, from the, like, 1980s, 1981, 1982, that by 1983 they were doing some really stupid stuff and we're going to get into that but the main issues that really caused the crash was people moving from atari the amount of developers that came out afterwards and of course pc price wars something to keep in mind 1982 they had a Revenue of about $3.2 billion. 1983, that went to about $100 million. In about one to two years. It's not really the greatest drop right there. Now, remember how I said they were doing some stupid stuff? So, 1982, the merchants saw, you know, in, in, that 1983 there was probably going to be like a 100% uptick of demand. So they started building out games and buying more stuff and creating more stuff to supply 175%, which is much more than they actually should have actually been building out considering they only had an amount of 100. And that was a projected demand. The most that they should have gone was 25%. 35 if you must shouldn't have been any higher than that 
Hey, Adam. Now, while these merchants and makers and everything like that were making these really dumb ideas and going forward with that with their business strategies, the actual staff side of stuff wasn't that great because there were, well, back then developers didn't really get any credit. Meanwhile, people who worked on movies or songs and stuff like that, they used to get credit. Like that's where the credit reel inside the movies come from and everything like that. And back then that just wasn't a thing. No, the developers didn't get any credit at all for anything. You could spend months of doing the crunch and everything like that. And you just never got recognized. And that started to piss people off so much so that four developers from Atari left and created Activision, which is one of the most popular uh, game developers around nowadays. Now, here's the thing, though. They took their knowledge because they actually knew how to build for Atari and then took that, started programming and building out their own games, started making their own cartridges and loading the games up onto those and selling them as a third party game system well games to people who already have atari systems now atari didn't really like that they you know back then everyone was oh you have an atari you buy games from atari you have this console you buy games from this console maker that kind of thing kind of similar to how we do it today but a little different see you could have bought nowadays you can buy from steam epic you can buy hard copy you can buy from a lot of different places you didn't have to go and just get it from one particular source that was the main difference um back then you just got it hard copy that's that's how you got the game be it floppy disk be it uh cd be it whatever it was that's that's how you got your games now or cartridge i, sh I don't know why i didn't think cartridge anyway so from that one developer, Activision, came three other developers, came 100 developers, sorry, 30 developers, then 100 developers, then 400 developers, and not all of them actually knew how to code or make a game for that most part. A lot of them didn't have the experience. And so things like reverse engineering and industrial espionage, which back then was very much in a hype because of movies and like spy movies and stuff like that but that also had a very negative connotation inside the media because like people were going to jail and getting caught and stuff like that and people didn't want anything to do with that but this was still happening in the gaming industry so i mean what could you do so aside from the industrial espionage again you had poor games coming out like so poor that when people actually took the time to do research 75% of sales went to just 10% of the games that were on the market. Now this caused a problem with those hundreds of other developers because, well, their stuff wasn't really selling, meaning that they started ending up inside bargain bins at a much cheaper price. And even then they weren't really selling. The companies who were selling this stuff inside their stores then tried to take it back to the makers to say, hey, can we get a refund? Can you give us some other games that we can maybe try to sell? But those makers didn't have anything else because they were going off of what they already had. 
And so a lot of them now not having any funds to really deal with this ended up folding or going bankrupt or just simply disappearing like games by Apollo in the US games. Add on the extra thing of two, at the time, two very high and well-known PC makers, Commodore and Texas Instruments, they decided that they were going to uh, have a price war, mainly because of, um, how should I put this? The age-old thing of why get a console when you can have a PC? See, remember, back then, you had consoles much like today, but you also had gaming computers that only played games. They couldn't do anything more, and they were, but they were still like computers. And so the computer makers were like, well, why are you buying those gaming computers, which only do this, when you can buy a gaming, when you can buy an actual computer that can play games and also do things like word processing, spreadsheets, you know, Minesweeper. And all these other things that you could actually be productive with your life. Now, <laughs> hey, don't get on us too hard. PC is still Master Ace. But here's the thing, though. That got to a point because Commodore and Texas Instruments, because they were trying to get the market to switch over from games, which had a really, really powerful ecosystem they had to start going down in price and going down in price and going down in price and going down in price until they got to the issue and keep in mind now consoles back then ranged from anywhere between two to four hundred dollars while gaming pcs were about one thousand to one thousand five hundred dollars now these regular pcs got down so far in price that they were competing with gaming consoles and gaming computers this meant gaming stuff really had a problem. Like Atari had a problem. They, they couldn't really compete with PCs. And, you know, this whole thing became, oh my gosh, what do we do? Now, all this caused the crash to happen, which then add on, you know, the whole thing of the Great Depression then you have a market crash, and and then you add industrial espionage onto that. Like, back then, you know, the Great Depression is still on a lot of people's minds. So, this whole thing with games became a dirty word. So much so that a lot of people who made games didn't call them games anymore. They called them simulations. Like, if you probably were there for it, you'd probably remember seeing uh, on the shelves dare dare hunting simulator or racing simulator or something like that they wouldn't call them games they were simulators you know it's simulated real life blah 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 but it got so bad that atari ended up actually burying seven hundred thousand of their games in a landfill in new mexico now there was a rumor and it became an urban myth at the time that they had actually buried millions of copies and that they were worth priceless amounts of money because, you know, you can just go there, get games, and then sell them. And, you know, eventually someone actually gave them permission to go and dig it up and stuff like that. And turns out, nope, 
it was not millions it was just 700,000 which is still a significant amount of games to be quite honest um but that just went to show like they didn't expect to sell these games at all like this was just a loss for them period blank they 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 knew they weren't getting this money back The nail in the coffin, stores stopped selling game consoles and they severely reduced the amount of games that they actually sold back then. Now, you'd think since I'm talking about game consoles and, you know, gaming computers, maybe the arcade would still be doing good? Nope. Between 1980 to 1982, there was an uptick in arcades from 5,000 to 10,000 across the United States. Now... 1983, 1,500 of those shut down. And the rest of them were saying that they were seeing like negative 40% of revenue. Like they they just could not really sustain that. And it was not a it was not good at all. So obviously things changed between 1983 and today because gaming is quite prolific around the world. You have tournaments, you have esports, you know, a lot of this is going on. Now, something had to have changed, and that something was Nintendo. Nintendo came, and at the time, during this whole thing, they had a console called the Famicom. And they rebranded it. They were smart. They took a look at what was happening in the industry. They took a look at what happened with Atari, and they said, you know what? We're going to do things differently. We're not going to brand this as a gaming console or gaming computer we're going to brand this as an entertainment system and not only that they then started things like control decks and going with phrases buzzwords like control deck or gamer pack uh or even just selling a toy with it called rob rob to actually get it to be sold back in stores and it worked it worked very well um it didn't it it also helped that they made it very simple, you know, they made it so it's like a VHS type system or a VHS cassette tape and you just pop it in and then you play your game like you're good, you're golden, super. Now, they did a little bit more than that, though. Uh, Goku had his moments, um, but we're going to get into that. We're actually going to get into those games. Now, Nintendo remembered what happened with Atari and Activision and how people broke off, created their own third-party developers. And they said, you know what? We're going to do things a little differently. Developers, you can make games, but you have to let us see them first before you can sell them. And we will give it, if we deem it, worthwhile the nintendo stamp of approval which is means that it's good quality they did this for, for peripherals accessories games you name it and this worked well for them nintendo that is for the developers they got limited to how many games they could make per year and at the time i think it was either three or five i believe it was five though and how that worked was you made your game you sent it to Nintendo. Nintendo then sends it on and puts it inside of a cartridge to sell. 
Now, if that game doesn't sell, that's on you as a developer. Like, Nintendo is not going to give you back any funds. They're not going to do anything. It's, it's, that simply means that you made a game that was low quality and that people did not want to buy. So do better. Don't make a game like that anymore. And learn from your mistakes. That was essentially Nintendo's take on that. <laughs> yeah, excuse me. What? I'm pretty sure there were a lot of developers that bought that same thing. Now, they also took the stance of locking their cartridges, which means that, you know, you couldn't reverse engineer them to then start making your own cartridges to put inside the NES. Oh, the, to the Goku thing. We're, we're going to get to the Goku thing. Like I said, we're going to get to that. Um, now, they didn't so much do this because of the United States. They did the locking more so because of other places in Asia where reverse engineering, stuff like this, was really prevalent. And people used to pirate games a lot. And, you know, it's just, you know, we're not going to allow this to happen. We're going to lock it down. So on and so forth. Now, granted, now people still were able to get past it, but it made it that much harder to do it. Now, all these restrictions actually ended up pissing off EA, which is kind of funny. Um, because at the end of the day, like even in a press statement that was on July 31st this year, EA pretty much was saying like they didn't see the relevancy of having some of their games on Nintendo systems. I think even up to today, there's only like maybe three or four games that they have on the Switch. Anyway, Nintendo did great things. People started to see gaming as a more, you know, relevant thing again. And the PC prices started to go back up. That also helped because, well, now that you have prices going back up and people seeing that, you know, the PC wars versus gaming um, console wars wasn't not really that much of a thing anymore. Some of them decided to leave the space and stop selling game, um, PCs on a whole, which then gave an end to the price wars. Simple as. Which then allowed gaming to become the form that we know it today. Now, how is all that relevant to today's topic, which is how anime and video games are relevant? Well, for starters, if we take a look over in the corner here, you'll see some cover art. Those who know what the game is, you also know that it comes from, well, something called Castlevania. Castlevania? It's an anime. But... Again, we have to point out Sega. Now, Sega is not one that's I've mentioned so far because Sega is not one that actually changed things. But these two companies being Japanese based, uh, they really started to change the way how the style of gaming was represented in the United States. And not even there worldwide, because don't forget this. They also were selling inside of Europe. They were selling inside of Asia, of course. They were selling Latin America, pretty much anywhere that they could. And like I said, 
This brought a new style to gaming. The Japanese art style, that is. Now, we noticed the first wave of Eastern culture hitting the United States, which then opened up things to anime. But if we take a look, things like Akira came out not so long afterwards, and that became a cult classic. Akira is an anime, for those who don't know. In Japan, though, we had games which led to manga and anime and TV shows like the Mario Bros. Um, you also had games that came over to the United States but weren't known by the names that they were actually supposed to be known as. For example, Fist of the North Star came over as a very anonymous name of Black Belt. So unless you actually knew the characters and saw the characters, you probably had no idea that that game actually came from an anime. You also had games like Final Fight and Street Fighter 2, which brought over that Japanese fighting style uh, for fighting games, which then saw, as we know now today, a quite big surge in popularity. Um, even though fighting games are one of the lower uh, watched versions of esports, but that should still go to show where this like all stands the fact that fighting games which are some of the more popular ones well some of the more well-known ones are using japanese characters for the most part for a lot of them that's saying something now video games coming to anime if we take a look at the corner over here we actually have right uh, how does this work here the old anime for Legend of Zelda, where Link is not blonde. He's a brunette. Yeah. Now, eventually they changed it and so on and so forth. But that was how they represented him inside the anime. You also have Super uh, the Adventures of Super Mario Bros. And, like mentioned inside the chat, we also had Dragon Quest coming out though dragon quest came out as dragon warrior over in this side of the, the world now anime was already having its foot over inside the united states and in other places so things like astro boy speed racer i think speed racer was probably my, one of my first anime to be quite honest um and kimba the white lion which we saw some serious rips from disney when it comes to the lion king <clears throat> uh came out you know in the 1960s and you know that was cool but for america they saw that more as cartoons versus anime for whatever reason like sure why not you know if it become makes you feel more accepted if you can become more popular sure get yourself called cartoon it's still animation which is short for which anime is short for so it's all good pac-man became the first tv show based off of a game now this was in 1982 and uh granted it was an american thing it still set the way for other games like captain n 
which, well, Cap the show was called Captain and the Game Master. And they took a lot of characters and items and stuff like that from Nintendo games and brought them into the show. Uh, they actually also had some uh, time block being shared between, I think it was... Uh, I think it was CBS and one uh, one uh, TV company inside Canada. They were pretty much doing it both in the United States and Canada, where they would have Captain N, then uh, Super Mario Bros, and, you know, another one, I believe. Yeah, so they did that for an hour-long block. Mario Bros. Live Action in 1989 came out, animated in 1990 and 1991. Which, you know, I have the picture of right there. Like I mentioned, Dragon Quest came out in 1990 as Dragon Warrior, both the game and the anime. So that was a little bit interesting. And in 1993, Sega's Sonic decides to show up and become a cartoon. I would not really call that one so much an anime. That one was more cartoonish, in my opinion. Now... That being said, I'm pretty sure most of us know who most of these guys are. Yeah, exactly. It was super cartoonish. Um, but, you know, if we take a look at this image that I have over here onto the right, we can sell a lot of all of these are anime characters. But if we take a look, we can see Choppa from One Piece. Ash and Pikachu from Pokemon. We have Yu Yu Hakusho. We have uh, Yu-Gi-Oh. We have Ble um, Ichigo from Bleach. We have Naruto from Naruto. We have the um, you know Al Edward and Alphonse from Full Metal Alchemist, so on and so forth. And the thing about it is, most of these game, most of these characters quite a lot of them have games based off of their the anime shows so dragon ball of course has uh fighting games that most of us know about nowadays but that wasn't always the case uh we of course know pokemon one piece is a part one piece has their own game but they're also a part of jump stars so is um, dragon ball so is ichigo so is naruto um I don't know if you guys know, but there was a Inuyasha game that came out. There was a Trigon game that came out. We, of course, there's Sonic. Um, there's uh, Attack on Titans game that come came out. We have Hunter x Hunter, which came out. Um, uh, pretty much, if you have an anime that has a rivalry going on nowadays, there's going to be a game for it somewhere, somehow. Now, up in the top right-hand corner of my screen, well, of the presentation, I should say, that was the original Dragon Ball game. That's Goku flying on his Nimbus cloud. Uh, it's very old school. It was made in 1986, and, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how it, it, it worked. It was really, really basic. Now, in 1987, the first Mega Man game came out. Now, the weird thing about Mega Man was that Mega Man was actually based off of Astro Boy, which was, you know, an anime. But 
Astro Boy was actually based off of the old story about Pinocchio. So that's not Asian based. That's more European American based. And so Worlds is this very small place. 1988 Astro Boy comes out, which is very ironic because it comes out a year after the thing that it copied it essentially. But Astro Boy then was known as Mighty Adam. And it had a very weird thing where, you know, it had a one hit death rule, which means you get hit, you're dead. In 1993, the first Yu Yu game came out for Game Boy, PC, uh, Super NES, and a few other systems, including, I think, Arcade. And like I mentioned, from there, other more popular anime with rivalry started to see things. I kind of already went over this. Um, Death Note, by the way, also had a game that came out in 2007. And so did Seven Deadly Sins in 19, sorry, in uh, 2018. Yeah, I'm not so sure about the whole Sonic being inspired by Mickey Mouse thing. Um, especially when you see where Mickey Mouse first came from and his original concept art. So it's, I don't know. I, I, I don't put a whole lot of stock into that particular rumor. Now, with all things like this happening, and uh, we're gonna be finish, we're gonna be wrapping up with uh, this one right here. Do you even have games coming from anime like One Punch Man, where you didn't think, you know, something like this would actually be possible, especially with how the premise for One Punch Man's anime is the main character quite literally defeats any and everyone with one punch. But somehow they managed to make it work. Now I'm going to disable the, the sound so we don't get a copyright thing. But this is essentially the One Punch Man game. Saitama, Saitama, oh wow. Saitama is there hitting people, taking up their full health in one shot. But as we see here, you actually have to start playing the match with a regular character and you have to wait for Saitama to run to you. And it actually has a timer and everything like that. Um, and it says like how long it's going to be and so on and so forth. Me personally, I would find it hilarious if he had to stop and get groceries or do something like and just have you just waiting there. Now, as he gets closer, of course, you know, you see him start to dash up. He changes over. He says you did nice, so on and so forth. He doesn't pretty much take any damage. And then one hit KOs the guy. And people are saying this is fine. And this is actually something that's completely different from what's on the market. In terms of how the game actually plays. Uh, sure, you have combos or supers and stuff like that. But they're not a one hit KO kind of thing. Not only that. You have, and I think um, the new Jump Stars actually had some people from Boku no Hero. So you're going to see games coming out, trying to change up the dynamics of stuff, basing themselves off of anime, and you're going to be getting games, well, anime basing themselves off of games. So quite in all truth, the link is there. Don't let anyone ever tell you that, you know, there's not a link between games, video games, and um, 
anime. Don't ever let them tell you that, you know, just because someone likes anime, they don't like games because chances are if you put them in front of a game, they'll sit down and play it. If you put them, if you put a gamer in front of anime, they'll probably give it a shot at the very least and see if they like it or not. So that is actually it for this week's episode of esports wrap thank you everyone that decided to jump in and listen even though this is technically the second time for some of you um would have heard me say it live this past sunday um but don't forget folks esports wrap is on every tuesday at 6 30 p.m eastern standard time our sister show more tech is on thursdays at 6 30 p.m eastern standard time and uh, feel free to jump into either the More Cookies Discord or the Bahamas Gamers and Otaku Discord. If you're either uh, from the Bahamas or living in the Bahamas, you could jump inside there and be a part of the community. Have fun. And um, yeah, until next time, guys, this is Michael Amorgan. Keep it savvy. <laughs>